Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. I expected it to all be covered in cobwebs like Miss Havisham's place. I came by to let Mrs. Wilson in every Thursday when I was around. How is Mrs. Wilson? Still crazy. This was my first time back at my flat since I'd been away. As you can tell, I was surprised to see the place in such good order. You watered the plants? Uh, yeah. I mean, they did not make it. I had some catching up to do. Before we followed the lead Caroline Morse had given us, Kennedy wanted to bring me up to speed on an aspect of her own investigations that had suddenly become relevant again. All right, so this guy, Edwin Lillibridge, Caroline mentioned him and it got a visible reaction from you. I've never heard of him. No, so this happened when you were away. I have a recording here, actually. I hate this audio software. (laughs) Oh, that's it. I recognise that voice. Okay, so starting at the beginning. We're going back to September 2022. I got an anonymous email telling me to look into a journalist called Edwin Lillybridge. Anonymous? Yeah, I couldn't trace it. Slide drew a blank too. And it didn't seem like anything. Lillybridge worked for the London Evening News in the 1930s. He wrote pieces about Nazi sympathisers, but as we learned from Caroline, the more hard-hitting stories got spiked. They never saw the light of day. Lillybridge disappeared in 1941. Disappeared sounds ominous. It does, but this was during the Blitz. The street Lillybridge lived on wasn't hit, but he could have been somewhere that did get bombed. I'm guessing people disappeared all the time back then. So Lillybridge seemed like a dead end. And then I was going through some of your files. I was thinking about that Crowley project you wanted to do. Yeah, I still like that idea. Right. So anyway, so in the Crowley file, there was a photograph taken in Paris in 1925. The Man Ray. You don't know it's a Man Ray, but yeah, that one. Have you looked at it recently? Not recently, no. I've been otherwise occupied for three years. (laughs) So the picture shows Crowley with a bunch of people, including Picasso, outside the Grand Guignol Theatre. And one of the people he's with is Edwin Lillibridge. Oh, interesting. So I went to Paris. To the Levesque Institute? To see your old friend Aramis Levesque. And you recorded it? (laughs) I did. It's right here. Okay, let's hear it. Mr. Levesque, it's Kennedy Fisher. The Levesque Institute is a private archive of esoteric material. It was started by Aramis Levesque sometime in the 1990s. You go through a gate off the main street of the Ile Saint-Louis and then across one of those cute Parisian courtyards where there are trees and cobblestones. And then you go through another door and down several flights of steps into a long arched room that sits beneath the island. I think it was some kind of storeroom originally holding goods that were going to be moved by boat up and down the river. Hello, bonjour, welcome. I'd heard Levesque's voice before when Matt met him in the last series, but I had no idea what he looked like. In person, he's an odd character, like a circus ringmaster crossed with a kind of studious professor. Once we got the introductions out of the way, I showed him the photograph I'd found of Edwin Lillybridge. Uh, This is an original print from the time, yes? I think so. I found it in Matthew's files. It was part of his research into Alistair Crowley. Ah, uh, Crowley, of course, yes. Uh, well, this is a valuable artifact. To me, I mean. But also the photograph itself, yes, it is very interesting. Could you describe the picture for me? Uh, uh, describe? For the recording. Oh, uh, maybe, of course, yes. Uh, so, 
Uh, we see here, this is uh, Paris in uh, 1925, and this building here is the Théâtre du Ronguignol. Uh, you know this, yes? I've heard of it. Yes, and it is a very popular back then, a theatre whose uh, programme consisted of uh, all, uh, comedy, comedy plays, you know, funny, and also the uh, grotesque... Uh, uh, horror, they put on horror plays. Horror, yes, yes, very violent indeed. Uh, gruesome, gruesome. It was a very popular entertainment, and as you see here... Here, in uh, this uh, photograph, a certain type of celebrity might visit. Uh, Mr. Crowley is in the picture, as you say, and uh, this woman here beside him is uh, Alice Prin. And uh, you see here, uh, Mr. Hewood has written on the back of the picture, Man Ray, with a question mark, because uh, this woman, Alice Prin, who is also known as Kiki of Montparnasse, was with Man Ray at this time, his girlfriend, and so Mr. Hewood has a speculation that perhaps the man holding the camera is Man Ray himself. And what about the other people? Oh, uh, Alistair Crowley, Alice Prin, and uh, this is Nancy Cunard, you know, the Cunard family, the shipping, and uh, André Gide, the famous author, and of course this man beside Gide is uh, Pablo Picasso. That's quite a gathering. Oh, yes, well, Paris in the 20s, if we could go back in time. And yes. the man behind Picasso is Edwin Lillybridge? Indeed, the subject of your investigation, no. <laughs> And uh, this uh, other man here, this is a rare image, uh, you understand, an unusual vision of uh, this man. In the photograph, Edwin Lillybridge is standing behind Picasso and he's whispering to another man. And that other man is laughing at whatever Lillybridge has said. This laughing man, this is Le Comte de Saint-Germain. Saint-Germain, the alleged immortal a man I had personally come to know as Casey, the friendly concierge from the Gilman House Hotel in Innsmouth, the man the rest of the world knew as Obed Marsh, the man responsible for Matthew Haywood's disappearance. It was strange seeing him there in Paris, nearly a century ago, looking exactly as he did when I last saw him in 2020. So what do you know about Edwin Lillybridge? Oh, well... Uh... This is a strange story. It is unusual that uh, someone leaves a group like this. So he was part of this group? With Picasso and Man Ray, uh, that I do not know. But with Saint-Germain and Crowley, yes. Very much. Back then, this was a time of great uh, possibility, yes? A, a brutal war was recently over. The Jazz Age, uh, yes, uh, reconstruction, possibility. And remember that this man, Saint-Germain, had recently completed a ritual in Melusine. Similar, I think, to the ritual he attempted to talk the unfortunate Monsieur Hewood. Now, uh, Monsieur Lillybridge was a young man, as you see. He had been a soldier, yes, in the British Army. He served in the same unit as Edward Lansdale, and this must be how he came to make acquaintance with Saint-Germain. But I wonder if this photograph is not also telling us something else. Like what? Well, look, you see the place, the Théâtre du Grand Guignol, a product, as you say, of its time. Yes, because they staged the stories of horror and torture and death, but also, very much so, of insanity. André Delord, who was in charge of the theatre at this time, worked on several plays with Alfred Binet, the famous psychologist. The pieces they created were all about insanity, yes? And so I wonder if this is relevant to the time we are looking at, the 1920s? 
and to the 20th century entirely. Okay. Yes, yes, because the century begins with the Great War. Yes, and at the beginning of that is the Melusine ritual. Saint-Germain, Lansdale, von Sebottendorf, perhaps Edwin Lillybridge too? They are attempting to open a door into another dimension. Now, we think of this ritual now as a failure, yes? A, a catastrophe with the village of Melusine vanishing, like your pleasant queen. But, but what if the door was open? Just a crack for a few moments, and something came through that door. Something, like, like an actual thing. Yes, maybe, or maybe not. Uh, perhaps not in a form that you and I might recognize, but what if uh, a thought, uh, an idea, uh, a piece of data, as we might say, a seed, and, and this seed, it is small and is weak, and it needs to feed to go strong. And where is the soil? You, you understand, I am using an, an analogy. An analogy, yes. yes. So the soil is the war. Just so, yes. Bon, a, a war the like of which human beings have never seen. Not two armies meeting on a single battlefield, but industrial murder, yes? Men using machines to kill more and more and more people. The battlefields drenched in blood. Millions of people dead. The horror, the terror, the insanity. And so if this, uh, whatever it was, came through that door and it fed on... Yes, yes. This is what I believe now. This thought, this seed, it does not belong here, but it feeds and it grows and it becomes more and more powerful. And now it is like a disease, an infection, yes, in the, in the minds of men and women. An insanity which men like Alfred Binet are trying to understand and explore through his work at the Grand Guignol. And people are drawn to this and they don't know why, because it is something they feel, because this thing, this beast is inside of them. Okay. Um... And so, through the 1920s, you have more and more occult activity in Europe that feeds directly into the birth of the fascism and into the Nazis themselves. And then the Second World War, more feeding, yes, more uh, sustenance, and then the atomic bombs, and then the Cold War. So you're blaming the whole of the 20th century on the Melusine ritual? Not the century, no, I don't think, but something, an idea, a, a spirit lurking in the shadows. Human beings do bad things. Yes, of course, always. But here, there is something more. And if you peer into the darkness, you can glimpse it, perhaps, yes? And these groups, the ones you have talked about in your recordings, they worship these things. They give them different names. But perhaps this is all one thing. Yes? The beast. The beast. The beast. And I believe that these men in this photograph, they were there when this beast came into our world. And perhaps they did not know what they were doing or what they had done. And perhaps some of them, like Monsieur Lillybridge, had cause when they realized this. To experience regret, yes? I've literally never heard so much bollocks in my life. Once Kennedy had played me the interview with Levesque, I sent it to Eleanor Peck for her take. She called me back 
almost immediately. Like that is the purest concentration of bollocks that has ever entered my ears, and I had a flatmate at uni who played Be Here Now on a loop. <laughs> OK, but nonetheless, Edwin Lillybridge is a character in all of this, and he links to Robert Blake. You haven't found the Blake notebook yet, have you? No, no, but we're pretty sure it's important if Wilberforce Ashton Heath is looking for it. Is this worth pursuing, Matthew? What do you mean? I mean, you've just got back from God knows where. You've lost nearly three years of your life. And he's left-handed now. That's really? beside the point. Well, I doubt that. And that is my point. Why are you diving straight back into this? What are you trying to achieve? If these people aren't brought to account, they'll just carry on with whatever it is they're doing. And we've learned enough over the last few years to know that if they succeed, it's not going to be good for anyone. You don't even know what they're trying to do. We don't, but maybe neither do they. They want powers and influence and blah, blah, blah. But we know now from all that we've seen that they're being fooled. They're being tricked into opening the door to something much worse. Okay, for clarity... We don't actually know that at all. It's just one wacky theory. Time to remind you that I went missing for three years. And he's now left-handed. Yeah, fine. Then find Blake's notebook. Whatever's in there is clearly germane to something. But if I were you, I'd be looking for a nice, cosy, regular person murder to investigate. So that's Edwin Lillybridge. And Robert Blake worked with him. As far as I can tell, Blake was the junior partner up until 1941 when Lillybridge disappeared. And then Blake seems to have picked up the torch. So they're both looking into fascist sympathisers. I think we can drop sympathisers. Ernest Gladwin and his confederates were out and proud fascists. And occultists. Yeah. And now, in the present day, we have Caroline Morse's brother, Wilberforce Ashton Heath. He's Ernest Gladwin's grandson. He's married into the Tillinghast family, a leading light in government. He was an architect of Brexit, anti-vax, anti-lockdown, anti-immigration, generally slightly to the right of Genghis Khan. And it seems like he's the guy who shut down the Department of Works. And he's looking for Robert Blake's notebook. Presumably because there's stuff in that notebook he doesn't want to come to light. Because it would be damaging. Which is why we need to find it and do the damage ourselves. Neither Kennedy nor I were of a mind to let all this go just yet. I've always done my best not to let personal politics influence the stories we tell here. But it was very hard to separate my distaste for Wilberforce Ashton Heath and what he stands for politically, from the investigation we were mounting. If Ashton Heath was commandeering the hunt for Robert Blake's notebook, then he was responsible for the death of Theo Martin. Couple that with the likelihood that he had also engineered the closing of the Department of Works, and it was difficult not to leap to the conclusion that this was a very bad guy indeed. But we needed more than supposition. We needed some proof. Kennedy went to chase down another possible lead on Blake's notebook while I jumped on a train to Essex. Yes, I knew Robert Blake. Not well, at least I don't think we met more than a few times. It was a telephone relationship, really. Diane Netley is an energetic 60-year-old. She and her husband Michael live in a small cottage in a village called Sybil Headingham in Essex. Michael is very ill with MS and Diane is his carer. It was Diane's concern for her husband's condition that led her to make contact with Wilberforce Ashton Heath. Before we got into that, though, I asked her about her friendship with Robert Blake. Oh, well, I first came into contact with Robert in the early 80s. I was a secretary in the Evening Standard. Robert was largely out of the picture by then. He'd had his heyday, but he would call up to pitch stories and features and what have you to my boss. And that's how you got to know him? Well, yes, because, you see... It was my job to make sure he never got through. I was the gatekeeper. (laughs) And Robert got wise to that quite quickly, as you might expect. So it became sort of a verbal tennis match between us. After a while, I became curious as to who he was, or at least who he had been. And I dug out some of his old pieces. He was very good, you know. Have you read his work? No, not really. We're we're still fact-finding at the moment. 
course, Robert became interested in me when he found out I lived in Sybil Eddingham. Right. Because of Savitri Devi. Savitri... Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I don't know. The fascist. She was friends with Francoise Dior and all the National Front people. This was not a name that rang a bell at the time. But it turns out that almost no one better embodies the bridge between occultism and fascism than Savitri Devi. We're going to get into her in a later episode, but if you want to get ahead on your homework, I recommend a deep dive via your search engine of choice. Debbie died in a house just, just along the lane here in 1982. I would have only been 19 or 20 at the time. We didn't see her very much. I think, I think she was already quite ill when she moved in. Anyway, Robert was fascinated by her, as you can imagine, because she associated with all of these people who had been trying to expose in his stories. So people like Ernest Gladwin? He was a nasty piece of work, by all accounts. And that chap who became Cabinet Secretary. Sir Godfrey Tillinghast. Oh, the dirt Robert had on those two. And no one would publish it. The establishment had the media in their pockets back then, although I doubt much has changed. The likes of Wilberforce Ashton Heath swanning about today like butter wouldn't melt. I understand you've made contact with Mr Ashton Heath. Is that why you're here? Did, did no, he... I, I don't uh, know him. No, I, I'm, I'm here because... Well, I was told that you were trying to, um, to pressure Wilberforce Ashton Heath into somehow curing your husband. You don't believe that's possible? Well, well I, I really wouldn't know about that. And who told you that I was pressuring him? I'd rather not say... But I can tell you this didn't come from his camp. I'm not directly interested in Ashton Heath. I'm looking into Robert Blake and specifically a notebook that he kept. Well, I, I can't help you with that, I'm afraid. I, I remember the notebook, of course. Robert would never let it leave his sight. But he also never let anyone look at it. He said the contents of that book could bring the British establishment to its knees. But he never used it even though he clearly wasn't getting any traction trying to write about these people in the press. Oh, oh, he was going to. Believe me. He was just looking for the missing piece. That's what he always called it. The missing piece. And he found it. He did? Oh, yeah. Thursday, the 15th of October, 1987. He called me here, at home, in the evening, quite shaken. He said, Diane, I've found it. I've found the missing piece. And then the line went dead. What happened? The storm. October 1987, the great storm. Oh. It cut all the phone lines. And the next morning they found Robert Blake dead in the lane outside his house. So you don't know what this missing piece was? No. And you have no idea where the notebook is? I do not. So then what leverage do you have over Wilberforce Ashton Heath? I have the tape, Mr Hayward. I have the tape that will bring down this government. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.